Hello, and welcome to the Roving Social Worker Podcast. I am Jay, your Roving Social Worker. Before I lead into the intro for the social work identities pieces, I wanted to reiterate the importance of self-reflection and growth. This is a lifelong process. It doesn't end with the last chapter of a book, with a certification, or even a degree. It is ongoing, sometimes uncomfortable, and we do mess up along the way. I will not speak for my guests, but I will say that I am constantly learning and often unlearning harmful ideas, behaviors, and processes. I hope that listeners can hear that growth as both the podcast and myself age. So before we really begin, I want to add a content warning. Some of the discussions may cause the listener discomfort. Uh, It may also cause reflection. Additionally, it does contain sensitive topics and often strong language because, come on, it's the Roving Social Worker podcast. In the last few episodes, we have been exploring social work identities. Initially, the project's goal was to discuss individual social worker identities. This meant hearing from grad school applicants, current students, social workers in the community, our radical and rabble-rousing social workers, and our social work educators and leaders. After weeks of overwhelming support, I started interviewing these unique individuals, asking them two questions. Who are you and why social work? It is up to the individual social worker to decide on what they would like to share and where they would like to take the conversation. Um, There is no expectation for anyone to place themselves in a compromising position with their family, their community, school, or employer. Remember, this is a public podcast, and when things go to the internet, that is where they outlive us. But that's enough rambling for me. I will let my next guest introduce themselves. Hi, all. Um, Thanks, Jay, for inviting me to your podcast. Um, My name is Michelle. I go by the pronouns she, her, hers. Um, And I would describe myself as heterofluid or heteroflexible um, cisgender female living in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, I'm Filipino-American, and I'm married to a white man, and I'm also a dog mom. Um, So by day, I work as well, my official title is school social worker in San Francisco. And um, with that, I have so many different hats that I play. My main role is really coordinating our mental health internship program um, and then providing uh, clinical supervision to master level and post master level um, social workers and clinicians. Um, another part of my role, we like to, in our, in my field or in my uh, district, we like to say that the other duties as a side is a really big, long and undefined list. And one of those things is um, I'm part of our unofficial crisis team. So I've helped actually create our um, crisis protocol for students who might be suicidal or self-harming. And then by night, um, I'm a part-time doctoral student at um, University of Buffalo. I'm part of the first DSW cohort. And currently my interest and focus area is really working with Filipinos and addressing uh, the suicide rates with our Filipino youth, because specifically here in uh, California, it's really high. Um, But also with that, my hope is to really look at just um, providing interventions and strategies that work in addressing suicide, not just with the Filipino community, but then also looking at different race and different intersectionalities. Uh, It's something that I could go really in depth with, but it's really kind of my interest. Um, So that's who I am. Um, I also have a lot of side gigs. 
I don't know why, but as social workers, for some reason, we feel like we have to work like 5 million jobs. Um, but I do sleep. I do have um, time with my dog and um, my husband as well. So I'm really organized and Google Calendar has been my friend. So that's kind of how um, I kind of manage my time. Um, but just really the second part of the question, which was why social work? I think, Jay, when you asked this, I kind of had my like elevator speech in my head of like, oh, I wanted to, you know, become a social worker to help people. Um, my general story, and this is true, but it's expanded is, so I got inspired to become a social worker because um, my ex-boyfriend when I was 16 was living in a group home. He was 18. Uh, I didn't understand what living in a group home meant, but um, he broke up with me right before prom. And the reason why he broke up with me is because he was going through a lot of different crises. Uh, and in that conversation of him breaking up, he was like, okay, you're worried about prom. And I'm here trying to figure out if I'm going to still have a place to live. Um, so that kind of sat with me. And that was a little bit of a turning point for me in terms of wanting to become a social worker. But when I kind of think about this deeper, and if you think about my area of focus, which is um, working with Filipino youth and addressing uh, suicide ideation and attempts, um, I would be lying to you if I didn't say that um, that in middle school, I had those same feelings around suicide ideation and intent. Um, and the statistics I saw at my work with the high rates is what was a f reflection of kind of what I saw growing up as well with friends, uh, family members. Um, so part of my story is also that I became a social worker because I didn't see people who look like me. Uh, I had a counselor or therapist at, in high school. And he was a white male. Um, he was awesome. He helped me get into grad school. He helped me get my first job. Uh, but I didn't see people who look like me in the field. So that's kind of where my story kind of has evolved. I've um, lost people um, personally to suicide. And professionally, this is really my passion and interest. So that's kind of who I am and why I chose social work. So in some of the other conversations I've had, um, depending on whether or not the person was more in academia or if they were more clinical in the field, what are some thoughts or concerns you have about social work right now, um, especially about having that representation, having someone who looks like you? Um, so what comes to mind, I mean... This is a little thing I tell because I work with interns specifically who are still like just really starting off in the field is um, I'm post 10 years out from graduating from, uh, from have graduated with my master's and I tell people I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I know I want to be in social work, but what does that specifically mean? Uh, what I like about really the field is there's so much that you can do. I started off really as a clinician. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do because of what I saw with my ex and with my family and just personally, I felt like what I really wanted to do ideally was possibly like make teen programs um, to provide spaces and support for, you know, students of color, youth of color, um, and students and uh, youth who identify as queer, as trans. Um, but I think when I'm looking in this field, I feel like with social work, it just, 
I mean, I've been in my job. I've switched jobs every three years. That's kind of what my track record is. And um, I just got into a new position as coordinating our mental health internship program. And I tell people, in three years, I don't know where I'm going to be. You're um, doing better than me. I last <laughs> about six months right now. <laughs> That's life of the traveler. Yeah, but I, I, I get I'm that. I'm traveling and I've, I've been switching off roles. And I think even like my work knows that I switch off. So they know that I'm in here for three years and what happens after three years, I don't know. I could um, continue to do managing programs and coordinating an internship program. Or I could go back to direct service or I could do something else around social work, do grant writing, do something. Um, one of the cool things actually they have out here in San Francisco um, was something I was talking to about with my intern, uh, which is really cool, is they have a, a social worker in the public library. Um, and so I'm seeing like these new like non-traditional social work jobs coming out. And my intern was like, how do I become that? How do I get that job? And I was like, I don't know, that sounds like a cool job because my mom worked in the library growing up and I'm like, that makes sense to have social workers mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah, I don't even know if I answered your question. I feel like I was going in circles, but hopefully I answered it. No, no, there, there was a lot of content there. I I get the impression, like you've mentioned a couple of times, um, that supporting your community, supporting communities that have been either overlooked or almost patronized mm-hmm. um, by white social work, being there, starting these programs, you know, providing support has been a big part of why social work, why you do this. And I'd have to agree that um, when I started to look at social work, I actually looked at it more at as the macro Mm-hmm. Um, the advocacy, you know, protesting in the streets. I honestly thought my undergrad when I decided social work as my master's that at some point I will be arrested. No, mm. Nothing for nothing major, yeah. just, you know, like blocking a street or something. Yeah. Know, it would be protesting related. Um, I really thought that when I was younger. And then as I progressed and was able to work kind of in the crisis and mental health field before I finished my master's, I realized my role is working with um, helping and being there for people that other counselors and social workers and that whole mental health won't. And that could mean anywhere from crisis. I mean, I worked in crisis units where a lot of the population uh, could be homeless, uh, on serious drugs, very psychotic, potentially violent, and somewhere there are people got hurt mm-hmm. occasionally. Um, and I felt at home there. I enjoyed doing it. And so many other therapists that I talked to, despite their degrees, like, oh, no, I could never do that. That's, that's just too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but it's, it's cool. And then I worked in the fire department for an internship for six months. Oh, cool. And I literally sat in people's homes with their departed loved ones still there. I remember um, being 10 feet away from someone who had died and they had, but they had been gone for a while. Mm -hmm. So the feet were turning colors and the feet were sticking out. And I will always remember that scene, but it, it changed how I viewed relationships with other people and how to be present for them, not to be freaked out because 
there was someone dead in the room. Yeah. And it, it, I don't want to say it became normal, but it was just part of what we were doing. And it, to see all the different types of grief processes and rituals surrounding it, because there were different cultures we went to. It yeah. wasn't just all white folk. It was actually, um, I'd say about half were uh, Latinx, Mexican. We had a lot of, because this was um, down by the southern border. So we had a good mixture of everyone. Um, so that was really interesting. But then when I go in mental health facilities, like outpatient treatment, um, I often get caseloads that other people don't because I'm quote unquote good with them. And what really what I'm getting is people who have significant amounts of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's being expressed as what people want to label as a cluster B personality disorder. And no Mm -hmm. one wants to work with a borderline. And to me that that's just horrific. Like stop just saying, oh, well, there are this personality disorder. Like, this is this is it. They're too, they're not going to want to do anything. Nothing's going to work. They're going to be resistant. They're going to hate you. They're going to love you. They're going to hate you. And really, it's it's looking at the trauma. Yeah. And being real with them and having that relationship. So, of course, I do better with them. And not 100% of the time. But, you know, there's, I can connect a little bit that maybe other clinicians can't because they saw that diagnosis and just shut down. Like, Oh, well, this is what I'm getting. They're never going to be compliant. They're not going to do their DBT homework. Yeah. They're going to come in and say all this stuff and then say they're suicidal five minutes before the session's over. And I, you've heard this, you've heard this kind of behind the scenes trash talk. And so I think that's what has kept me in social work, but not just social work therapy, working in populations that other people are unwilling to be in, communities others do not want to be in because it's inconvenient or it's uncomfortable, um, Mm -hmm. or working with people with a lot of trauma. Yeah, yeah. No, one of the things you were saying to me as you were just talking um, is like, I think we talk in my work specifically like you know with a lot of meetings and different things like that there's like community norms and agreements and one of the ones we put out there is like you have the right to feel safe you don't have the right to feel comfortable um and this is specifically for our white staff members um because i think part of this i you know do a lot of like racial equity work luckily at my work but it's we're kind of calling it out like i i mean if you're looking at a person of color they're not always in a sense comfortable and even I think specifically when I work with interns like I really want to model that like it's okay to have these uncomfortable conversations and this is kind of where you learn and grow but you know like we all have the right to feel safe in this space and safety mm-hmm. looks different but being comfortable is not a right you have in here um, because you know if you, I'm not there to try to take care of the white clinicians um I hate to say it it's kind of like look I'm gonna share I'm to the point luckily in terms of like my role and my um years of experience where I feel comfortable in a sense like calling it out and also calling it in you know and having these conversations but I think it's really important to when I mean I know in grad school one of the I was um I went to USC 
but I was at the Orange County campus. Um, and some of the people I was working with, they were really religious, which, you know, I'm not knocking that. I personally myself am agnostic. So, you know, you believe what you got to believe. But there was comments made about like, well, I wouldn't want to work with a gay person or I wouldn't want to work with someone who has substance use. And I'm like, okay, but you don't really get to pick and choose, like, especially when you're starting off. Most people don't start off in private practice. The clients you get are the clients you get. You kind of have to start where they're at. I don't know if all my clients are queer to start with. It's not like they're, you know, walking around saying that all day long or if they've had a history of substance use. But also what I'm thinking when you're talking about, like, just like the the macro levels, it's like one of the values of social work is really like, you know, the value is of social justice and advocacy and supporting, you know, our marginalized and oppressed communities. And that doesn't mean the people who, you know, are the have more privileges. Like I, I struggle when people are in social work and um, are are a little bit like nitpicky of who they want to work with. Like I, I'm all about like, if you have your own triggers and you need to, you know, take space because, you know, it's, you know, that as a clinician, you're not, or, um, as a person, you're not going to be able to help that person because it's bringing up something in you. But it, to me, has been hard when I hear people who are completely like low to certain things because I think, you know, there's there's just so much that comes with a person in terms of like the individual work, but also when we're looking at the meso and macro work. I think, you know, looking in the work that I'm doing specifically around Filipino youth at in San Francisco, I mean, we've been trying to, We've been trying to talk to the community and even like our leaders um, in terms of like city council and board of supervisors and health commissioners really about this problem. Yes, Filipinos specifically in my work in my school district make up 4% of the district, which is not a lot. But when our middle school youth are at a 32.4% rate of of saying that they want to, they have seriously thought about committing suicide, that to me overrides everything and how do we in a sense you know even though there are four percent we want to still provide the services and supports and how do we include the families um so i feel like the work we've been really doing is you know what the hope is again like what i said is if we support our filipino youth and are able to find culturally appropriate interventions maybe these interventions or these supports can work with other populations as well. And I didn't even break down, like with a 32.4% of our um, middle school youth that have said, Filipino youth that have said that they want to, they've seriously thought about committing suicide, that hasn't been broken down by intersectionality as well, like socioeconomic status. Are they an immigrant? Were they um, born here? Do they identify as LGBTQ? So yeah, I feel like there was like a lot of, there's a lot that could be done in all the different levels and yeah, I just really want people to be aware of the, in terms of the populations um, and just to not kind of completely exclude themselves and not at this moment saying, no, I don't want to do this or I don't want to work with this group of people without getting to know them and kind of everything else that comes up. I, one thing is you're nicer than I am. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, When I went to do my MSW, I originally was on campus in a classroom um, for that for the foundation's year, and then I transferred and finished off my degree online elsewhere. But I remember in one of my classrooms, now I've always been queer, and I've always known I've been queer. Um, same thing with the non-binary. I just wasn't talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to get in, I mean, I've been in relationships with 
non-male people, but I, I'm on my second marriage and both have been with men. And at that time I was engaged to my now husband of almost 10 years. So I'm sitting Oh, yeah. Thanks. I know. I haven't divorced him yet. Uh, oh, he's going to listen to this. Um, <laughs> so I'm sitting in the classroom. Jay's not planning to divorce you, Jay's no. partner. No. Nope. No nope. Nope. There's no one else for me right now. <laughs> ever. Um, so I'm sitting in this classroom, and there were a lot of a specific um, religious group that's in that area um, Mm -hmm. that have very strong feelings, anti-gay feelings. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course they were white women. Always. It's always, it's always in the classroom. Um, And I remember sitting there and they said something to the effect of, you know, I'm not going to work with gay people. It's sinful. They're evil, blah, 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 blah. Like all this religious rhetoric. And 20 i was probably i was four i was 24 at the time so a little more feistier than i am now i i've felt <laughs> in the last decade um i remember sitting there and i'm like what the fuck? what are you talking about and normally i was that that person in the classroom that always did really well but stayed very quiet yeah but i'd have I'm talking to you outside of class, hanging out with you on breaks, going out to lunch between classes, that kind of stuff. That's and and people knew that. And I had lots of friends in the program. So for me to just kind of start spouting off in the classroom was unusual. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this this person says this thing. And I remember just looking across the classroom at her and saying very loudly, because everyone got quiet, I'm like, then you need to leave. And not come back to Thank this program. And the teacher just stood there and stared at me. And all the students were like, what did she just say? And I'm like, no, you don't no. say that if you want to be a social worker. And then there was a break after that because it was very disruptive what I said. <laughs> and I don't, I honestly, to this day, I was so focused on everyone that came around me to kind of like rally me. Because they realized I immediately regretted yelling that across the room at this person. Um, Do you regret and I know the No, absolutely. And I didn't really regret it. I think I regretted the way I did it. Yeah. Uh, because there was backlash. And I made that person feel really, really bad. But at the same time, I didn't feel bad. Because I'm like, you're talking shit about my people. Yeah. <laughs> my, 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 queer, my queer family. Like, you're, you're saying that we're not good. Solely well, also, based yeah, on- who, like, that, that just goes to me, it's like, um, okay, maybe there's people in your family that have not come out because of words like that that's being said around, you know, it's kind of like, you you don't know who, who's around you, so it's like, l- let's be respectful, because now if, you know, you're, someone in your family heard you say this, they're not going to want to come out to you or trust you with what's being said, or, you know. But this is the shit people say that gets us killed. Yeah. And and not just queer folk, not just us, like people of color. Uh, we say this stuff, we say this racist, we say this bigoted shit. And this is honestly what gets us killed. This is the starting point, this hate, this permissible hate. So for me, if you're going to be a social worker and you're going to be an, like if you're going to be a social worker, you need to be an ethical one. And to be yeah. ethical, you need to you need to reconcile 
this dissonance between religion and the code of ethics. Yeah. And how do you do that? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, but like that, that for me as, and even in my um, MSW program online and DSW program, I saw a couple of things that I'm like, Oh, good Lord. Um, Oh, you're talking to people, aren't you? Like, wow, that was really racist. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like I'm in a bubble living in California, which I mean, there's also racism. You are here no, and- you're in a yeah. you're in a big bubble. You're totally a bubble. And, yeah, I'm in a big bubble, but it's also still like just. I mean, so my husband's family's from Western New York, and you could not be any more like. All, I mean, there I'm the only person of color who's who's there when I go out and visit, and I love my in-laws are really su- supportive, and I don't feel any judgment around them. But I think what I honestly did not really recognize as a person of color is how much we how much I was different until I was with a white man. Um, and I tell my husband that. I mean, I think luckily I appreciate my husband because he's able to like have conversations with me about race uh, and just the stupid shit that I see or the shit that I call out. Um, and he's able to respect that and I'm able to in a sense like challenge him about, you know, his privilege and things that come up. But honestly, like, I mean, yeah, living in this bubble and then being married to a white man, like it completely threw me off um, in terms of just kind of how I see the world and also I recognizing how the world sees me and the world doesn't always like what they see or, you know, questions like gives my husband more attention um, in terms of he's the man, he's the white man. And yeah, but I've also gotten shit like in terms of being a person of color where married to white man and like, what does that mean? You know, um, I'm giving in or whatever it is. And only Asians you're betraying like, you know, your, you're betraying yeah. your race. You're, yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I have heard those statements before it's it's obviously backwards for me i'm married to a black man yeah um have a, a biracial son together which in this country means a, a black son yeah and i in my undergrad i basically had enough credits for a minor in african-american studies mm-hmm. it kind of i don't even know how that happened i was just really like when I started taking the coursework, a lot of it made sense to me as far as like advocacy um, in social movements. And it, a lot of the courses were built around other social movements as well, but from communities of color. So I think that's the, it was the social work aspect of it. The original, yeah. you know, the Black Panthers, the original social workers um, doing some really great stuff, uh, despite what history wants to say. So I, I think that called me. So I had a, this foundation of, um, book learning about communities of color you know not mm-hmm. I grew up in mostly white areas I lived in an upper middle class white neighborhood in junior high and high school I went to a mostly white college and this wasn't on purpose this was just kind of I, I wasn't aware yeah so um and I worked I had known my husband so I was 19 actually he went to my first mm-hmm. wedding that's a joke we have. Uh, <laughs> he was a guest at the first wedding and then the guest of honor at the second. So <laughs> we, you know, I, I had friends who were from other communities who had other religious backgrounds and all that, but it didn't really set in until we got married. And huh. literally 
our first, like to really be aware, like when we were dating for whatever reason, Phoenix, Arizona is also this weird, like racist bubble, but my husband, and we joked about this too. He wasn't the wrong Brown, you know, Um, they, they, yeah, there there aren't a lot of black folks in Phoenix. Uh, There is a population, but it's small compared to the white and Hispanic Latinx populations. So it, he he got followed a couple of times. We had a couple of dirty looks, but we didn't really have too many bad things happen to us in the metro area where we lived. Then when we moved to more white communities, it became very apparent. In Montana, it's actually significant. I mean, it's it's scary in some places. We can't stop. We can't stop alongside the highway in some of the towns because we were both legitimately fearful for what might happen. Uh, just the whole, and of course, the the tone of the whole nation has changed. Um, yeah. Before it wasn't as permissible to be so racist, and now it is. And to not only be racist, to but to actually constantly engage in very violent things, whether it's just hate speech or people are just getting out of control, and they're told they're good people when they're Nazis fighting protesters. Like, yeah, that's mind blowing. So we live in this culture, and. You know, I didn't understand white privilege until it was challenged. Yeah. And that's a shitty thing to say. And like, that's a ass backwards way of coming to that. But it's like when you no longer have the benefit of knowing your husband and your son are going to be safe solely based on their skin color. But you're fine. I pass. I can walk down the street. People leave me alone. But when I, so I can go travel to all those shitty places that I don't want to stop alongside of the road now. Like I can go there with no problem. I just look kind of weird. I have a mohawk, uh, nose rings, all that. I just look kind of weird. But they'll just, oh, it's just some punk rock, whatever creature rolling through. But with them, (laughs) it's, it becomes like this racist back and forth power struggle. Yeah. What are, why are they here? And I'm very, very lucky. I have a husband who will have these deep conversations with me and who will be honest with me and who will tell me when I'm being racist. I mean, and he has ways to joke about it because I don't think he wants to hurt my feelings. But like I've done and said stupid stuff. Yeah. And he just he's rolled with some of it. And just let it go. Because like I... And then other times he's like, no, <laughs> that's think about that again before you say it. And I'm like, oh, shit, sorry. Like, that was really racist. Yeah. But you almost have to be in the like you have to be in these marriages. You have to be in these relationships to kind of see that. Yeah. At least for me. <laughs> I know. And I think I mean, it's kind of these spaces where it's like he can talk to you. And then the thing is, when he tells you this. You have the awareness of being like, oh, yeah, oh, shit, this is racist. Like, um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who don't have that where, I mean, you know, and I think it's not always like the person of color's job to teach the white person. But I think, you know, like with friends and things like that, like I'm a little bit more open. Um, but I, yeah, I could just see that well, for some people, like not, you know, I mean, it's it's always a struggle of kind of if a per and I'm not white, uh if a person's white, like, how do they learn more about people's cultures? Like, that's the question I get. It's like, well, how do I learn more about your culture? And I'm like, without it being offensive. And I'm like, that's a good question. I mean, like, you know, it's kind of talking to a little bit more people, but it's, it's always like this fine line of like, you don't want to be 
intrusive or invasive and having the person educate you about like who they are and their background and even be as a person of color like it's I don't know every like Asian race um, and everyone in their different cultures but it's I feel like it's always been a struggle in terms of you know how do you learn about somebody else's culture without being offensive or without making them teach you in a sense um, uh, yeah. you can't I mean it's Yes, you you don't need to be offensive, but like you're going to make mistakes. That's part of learning and growing. You're going to fuck up. Yeah. And I uh I think is is it social work cares on Twitter? Yes. Or was it Laura? I I one of that group um had reposted or posted something about like it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. It's okay to make mistakes. Like my husband didn't take time to educate me. Um, some of the stuff just naturally occurred because we were working on our communication mm-hmm. and asking him like, sorry, did that hurt your feelings? A lot of what I learned um, was from just listening, like just listening, yeah. not necessarily asking questions, listening, observing um, kind of our skills as being therapists and then reading a lot, reading narratives, reading biographies, reading memoirs, reading actual not white history. Yeah, um, educating myself about our country, um, all the things that have happened. There's plenty like in 2019, there's a lot less excuse to say, well, I don't have access to this information because like my podcast is free. There's lots of podcasts yeah. that are done by people of color. And they talk about their experiences and they talk about racist shit and there's like decolonizing social work podcasts. I mean, there's all these resources now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I feel like there's there's so much on Twitter that you can like look up. I mean, yeah, if you have access to internet, then you have an access to like a whole group and like a whole different world of people and just like, yeah, it just makes complete sense. There's so much more access now just to different things. Um, and I think when you're talking about just like the narratives and listening to people's stories or just like observing, it's, I'm just realizing like, oh, that's kind of what my husband has done. Like he gets certain shit about like the Filipino community or just even like the cultural like beliefs of like having to respect like your elders and what that looks like and why, you know, I mean, I'm an only child, so I have to, I'm the one caring for my mom and everyone I feel like in the world is like, oh, self-care or just like, you know, hire somebody to take care of her, which she's living in a uh, in a senior home. But I'm like, yeah, but culturally, I still got to like, in a sense, do everything. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things is like, I had like a mental breakdown a few years ago when I was, you know, having to, you know, help take care of her. I was just, you know, at my wit's end, I was getting burnt out you know, trying to do this for a living and then also care for also another person who is triggering you. Me and my mom don't have the best relationship. We've gotten better. But I think in my family, like they did not understand that. They saw me as like, oh, you're the social worker and you know all of this stuff. So you should be able to apply it. And you should also, because you're Filipino and our values is really like we take care of each other. Like you just got to kind of suck it up. And um, I think people on the outside didn't get that where I'm like, yeah I I can't there was no one for me also to tap out or tap in um it was not until I basically just hit a breaking point where I was like I went off on her I went off on my whole family and I think my husband had to kind of go and explain and be like okay yeah like you know I can only take so much before I lose it and 
you know, with my history of like suicide ideation and depression and anxiety, it's like, I was like telling my family, I was like, my mental health is getting worse. Like y'all don't, you all may not believe in the mental health system or what that looks like, or y'all may just tell me to pray for it, pray to get better, but that's not my reality. Um, so I feel like in terms of just like looking back at my husband and seeing that, like, I appreciate that he gets that and just even from listening and observing. Um, but I feel like there's like a lot of the cultural pieces. It's, I mean, my luckily my some of my family members are slowly moving and understanding what mental health is and just kind of the are not are okay to talk about it and don't feel so stigmatized but there's still a lot of them um that won't you know they clearly have something that they can get help with either through medication or through therapy or through whatever it is through groups um it's just not gonna happen in this lifetime for them um and I think it's, yeah, I, I mean, I've been like the vocal one in my family, like I've been in therapy, I've had medication, you know, um, everyone knows what I do for a living. So whenever there's crises in my family, it's like, I'm the one who gets called on, Yep. which is, yep. which is fine. I mean, you know, like it's, but also I think we've lost people to suicide in my family and I've done a lot of work around like American Suicide Foundation, um, when I've ran and like participated in the walks and helped with the walks, I've told my family years on nobody ever comes and shows. And I think, again, I want to be respectful of where people are at. Uh, so there still needs to be like a lot of cultural shifts. I think part of what I've been looking into as well is what are other healing practices? So um, interesting conversation with my mom is really just talking about indigenous healing and what that looks like. Um, so that's something that I'm really learning because again, talk therapy or even going to see a therapist or going for like to the hospital for groups is not something culturally that my family's into. So I've been trying to find creative ways such as indigenous healing practices to see how, you know, they can get support that they need, whether it's even through church as well. Um, yeah. I, uh, one thing that came to mind when you were saying all of that and then kind of bouncing off what I had mentioned earlier is the longer I do this, and this sounds really weird, but I've had a couple of supervisors kind of say, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I have a harder time now working in all white um, communities. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the, the disconnect is when I go into the community, they expect me to be just like them. Mm. Okay. And I'm not culturally, yeah. religiously, any, any, anything, the way I sound, the way I look. And so I think that creates kind of problems. The one job where I had was in a very, very white area. Um, that was like the hardest one I did as a travel social worker because I was so different from them, at least in other communities. Why I'm different, but yeah. there it wasn't. Cause everyone the, the, be there. Like, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. And be a part of the community and be from the community and stuff. So, I mean, there are a lot of things to think of. Like, this whole conversation brings up a lot. You know, how does your, like, how does my whiteness affect those around me in positive ways and negative ways? What emotions is that going to bring up? Um, and then how does my differences, even around people I look like, mm -hmm. how does that affect like, if they know I'm queer, how does that impact yeah. them? They know I'm a cat. 
like they know, you know, I'm married to a black man, all that kind of stuff. How does that impact practice? And I think that's really important to kind of pass on to the next generation and the generation behind that is, you know, you have to have these conversations and they are difficult, but they're important. And we, we do need to shift cultures, but at the same time, are we forcing cultures to just do the white way of things? Yeah. Or as social workers, do we look into indigenous ways of healing? I do, but I work with indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. So it's very natural for me to talk about this. And if you want any books, any suggestions for books, uh, I have tons. <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, even some of the themes, the concepts I get in these books work with everyone. It's just basic stuff that um, world-renowned psychiatrists are talking about. Relational. Having yeah. relationships. Being connected. It, it's not 45 minutes of therapy a week that changes anything. It's the 15-minute interactions that person has with everyone else around them the rest of the week or the rest of the day. Yeah. You know, that's what's going to help a child. That's what's going to help an adult with trauma is those relationships. And that is social work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think I just want to tie it back to what you were saying in the beginning a little bit of like, when we're looking at the clinical and direct practice, we have to look at how also like on the macro level, how we're looking at policies and laws and just systems and how it's, um, how it can support communities of color and just the non I guess I hate to say non-traditional but like not the not white way of doing things um because when we're looking again who are making our laws and um what the big systems how the big systems are run like we have to look at also how do we do make changes and support communities of color and people with different intersectionalities um like those who identify like as queer uh, and then how do we support our immigrant um and refugee and asylum seekers out you know in our community so that our policies are supporting them as well you know absolutely and i and i'm big about like i don't want to say i'm a straight up micro social worker because that's bullshit i'm not <laughs> I tend to do two or three things at once that keeps me in all the spheres and the community larger, all that. Um, just what because that keeps me it? balanced. <laughs> or I hope well, more social workers are doing a lot more. I mean, I feel like a lot of people I've met and know, I feel like they're doing two or three different things and it's kind of in all different levels, which I think is really, it's really important. And I appreciate you saying like, you're doing all these different things, but I have to also remember not everyone does that. Well, and I don't know if everyone can identify that. That's true. I, I don't know if people attribute that thing as a social work thing, and I don't know if we need to. Um, it's a it's a community organizing thing. It's, you know, I don't want to just like, well, social workers are only able to do this, and yeah. no one else can do it. Like, I I don't want to I don't want to get into that discussion of you know keeping people out of social work. No, that's that's not what I'm saying. But I think some people do a lot more than they realize, mm-hmm. and they cover all the levels. And by the way, ethically, we're supposed to engage yes. in like politics and policy, even if we're working nine to five in a th- in a clinic, doing whatever case management. So I mean, it's 
And I think it just inherently comes to us. People who are true social workers through and through and have been forever before enduring and whatever in retirement of the degree. Um, and I don't think social workers actually retire. That was, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they do on paper, but then they end up volunteering. Yeah, no, they that way. just do social work till you die. But I think a lot of us, we were playing those roles within the community before we had the degree. Yeah. And there's, there's so much to just kind of like this lifestyle and we're all brought to it for different reasons. Maybe it was, you know, the rough childhood, or maybe it's you ran into social workers at, a, at just the right time, or maybe you were a community activist and you're like, you know what, this degree fits me best. I need a real job. I need to actually I need, pay I need my the piece bills. of paper so I could get, I, I need the piece of paper so that I can actually get paid to do what I want yeah. to do. Because I think that's you know, where I've met a lot of people where I'm like, you're already a social worker, except you just don't have that piece of paper. Like, and of course, there's a lot of things that they'll still learn in terms of their master's or doctorate. But there's people that I've met that I'm like, you need to get paid. And like, part of, you know, it's to work to get more in a sense, not like us social workers are making like millions of dollars. But you know, I think part of that is I've yeah, seen people who've been doing this and I'm like, social worker fits you. Like that's if you if you're looking for a degree, you know, you're looking for that piece of paper, this is I feel like the paper that fits you and what you're doing. And for those who stay in the community as is, I think those have been some of the most influential people in my career. Yes. Who have definitely. helped me become the social worker I am. And they were community organizers. They were, you know, they did, they weren't degree. They may not have even had a high school degree, but they showed what it was to be committed to something, to be committed to social yeah. justice. And I, all of that is really important. And having the discussions that, um, especially with, with new grads or interns is um, reminding them that, you know, it's, you don't become this magical, all-knowing creature with a master's degree, and you don't become this all-knowing, magical creature with a doctorate degree. Like, honestly, the more you learn, the less you know. I feel yeah. like I know yeah. nothing at this point. I'm, I'm doing a dissertation, and I'm like, I don't know shit. Um, wow. <laughs> Look what I said. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Neither do I. And that's okay, because it's going to change. And hopefully you and I will continue to change with our profession in an ethical and forward way and that we will only continue to add to it. Um, and if it ever comes to the point where we're not adding to it, it's probably time to retire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll start working at Trader Joe's. Nothing wrong with oh, I love it. Bookstore for me. Bookstore, Ooh, coffee shop, or potentially uh, working at a whiskey bar that that might oh i'll just be a dog walker then oh yeah that's lots of lots of good job. yeah let's uh, there's so many things we could do after social work why are we in this field again <laughs> <laughs> just kidding i love what i do that's the reason why i have like a million jobs and that's the reason why i keep going and getting my degree in social work because i have I didn't, I didn't say this, but I have my bachelor's in social work. I have my master's in social work. I'm getting my doctorate in social work. I don't think I can get any more degrees in social work after this unless someone else makes another degree. Uh, I mean, you can get a PhD. 
with your DSW. I don't know what that yeah. will do. Drive you I don't want to be a professor. Slowly. Yeah. Slowly go into that brink of darkness. Um, <laughs> before we end this, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just want to say again, thank you, Jay, for reaching out. I enjoy following you on Twitter. If you are not following Jay on Twitter, please follow them. They're amazing. Um, and then also, yeah, just shout out to all of those who are doing things that are related to social work, those who are social workers already, aspiring, you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter and in all different spaces in the real world too that are doing social work. So feel free to reach out. I feel like our community has been, you know, pretty open and supportive of each other. Um, and I know I've connected with people on Twitter um, that have been willing to answer questions or yeah. So just want to just say, give a shout out to everybody. All right. Thank you. And that's it. If you need more roving social worker, you can find me on my Instagram and Twitter as travel underscore MSW. Until next time, friends and travelers, this ends today's segment of the roving social worker podcast. Travel well and keep on traveling. All right. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. And I will catch you later on Twitter. Yes. Okay. Get, hopefully you get some sleep and thanks again. And yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye.